So um, I'd like to congratulate you, and that um, this is our third full day of practice completed. And um, yeah, three full days. Well, three, almost, pretty close enough. Tonight at 9.30. And um, I hope that uh, the swamp has lessened some. And I also know that things are coming up. And um, this is very normal and natural. And of course, um, in the interviews today, had some very... um, heartfelt conversations of things that are coming up. So, um, you know, I just want to just acknowledge um, the different feelings that are there. And we're working on approaching what arises with this spirit of allowing, acknowledging what's here. Dana Falls, she writes a very beautiful poem called Allow. And she says that there's no controlling of life. Try corralling a lightning bolt. Try to contain a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies letting it all in, the wild and the weak fear, fantasies, failures, and success. And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, the practice becomes simply to bear the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow, allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The sense of allowing for many of us might feel actually counterintuitive. Allow to feel the feelings. I want to get away from these feelings. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. And I'm going to offer you a metaphor that some of us may not have an experience with. And it's also a figure of speech, and so I'll explain it. And, um, well, actually, here we are in New England. So those of you that drive in snow know after a while that when you get into a skid, when you're driving in snow, the most efficient way to get out of the skid is to turn the wheels into the skid. And it feels almost a little bit counterintuitive. And I remember as a driver growing up in the Boston area, getting into skids when I was a young driver and kept on spinning out. And I remember telling my dad one day, and my dad said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, turn your wheels towards it. And when he said that, that actually created a very unpleasant feeling tone. Oh, are you kidding? I, I don't want to get, you know, those little, uh, that's that feeling tone we've been talking about. Like, I don't want to do that. That scared me, what he told me. That scared me. 
So I didn't believe it. And I kept on turning away. And I kept on spinning out. And I think at some point experiencing the futility of turning away and there was no other option left. I tried one day, just very eensy beensy, slightly little, <laughs> turned it a little bit tall as a skid. And all of a sudden I could feel my car coming straight. Ooh, a pleasant feeling tone arose. <laughs> I could feel it going straight. And that was a, a seed that was powerfully planted within me. And I don't know if my father, I think I've shared with him some about this, um, what he planted was this notion of turning into the fear. And I could find my heart. It's a very wonderful seed that was planted, turning into it. But there is a quality that feels kind of counterintuitive. If I turn into it, I'm going to lose myself, I'm going to get swallowed, I'm going to get broken into a million pieces. And I think the idea of turning into it, it feels like it'll just get bigger. And many of us that practice mindfulness meditation have that experience when we begin to turn and bring more light of awareness, like shining a flashlight on something, it does have that feeling of getting bigger, magnifying, amplifying momentarily. And of course, at that momentarily moment, we may decide at that moment to exit stage right. I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with it. This is the impulse to turn away. It's uncomfortable. In our practice, we're learning how to be with that impulse and to be curious about it, begin to investigate it, see what happens. So here we are in this uh, Christian monastery, so I have to definitely pull out my Christian literature poems here. And this is actually from the Middle Ages, so it has kind of a Middle Age. This is a perfect one for here. <laughs> it's, it's, called, it's from Francis Fenelon, lived in the 1600s. And he must have been a meditator. He says, as the light of awareness increases, in other words, he's bringing more attention to what's here. As the light of awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of the heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we've harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. But please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. This is a very beautiful, hopeful comment here. Bear in mind for your comfort when you, be, when you begin to perceive the malady the cure begins. So we're learning to uh, meet what's here. You know, I just got a note. I won't say the name, but what is this unhinging and why is it happening here? This is a note from one of you. An un unhinging. Why is it happening here? Last body, my, my, my body was just so shaky. Five... 
had a sit earlier today. I just sobbed. I needed to lie on the floor and feel its coolness, grounding myself. So we're sitting with ourselves and we've taken away a lot of the distractions that we usually do in <coughs> day-to-day life. Bless you. All these distractions taken away so that we are sitting with me, myself, and I. And sometimes I like to think of the mindfulness practice as standing or sitting in a hall of mirrors and everywhere you look is you. But actually, who else could it be? Because everything's just a projection from our own psyche anyways. Sitting with ourselves is uh, the noblest of works and at times the most formidable. Dana Falls, she writes in the whole array that this life isn't about slicing off the parts that I don't like to be left with those I do. I choose the whole array, night and day, ease and its opposite, the squeaky wheel and the grease gun. Push away any piece of life and a key that could have opened a door is lost, tossed out with the trash. I pray for the courage to receive the full catastrophe. Hey, John. I pray for the courage to receive the full catastrophe, however it appears to me, without needing to push back. That's a pretty powerful statement. Without that need to push back. But what if we began to enter into... So Jennifer Wellwood, she writes that willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. It's a very powerful practice. And throughout this world, in many of different of the spiritual and the psychological, philosophical traditions, is a perennial wisdom that understands that a ruby is buried inside here. It's not outside. It's inside our own heart. Now, I don't want to appear to be too macho here. You know, there's the comfort zone... There's the learning zone, and there's kind of the zone where you get a little burned, the danger zone, the uncomfortable zone. And so, you know, we're trying to be wise and skillful here in this learning zone of what would it be like to begin to acknowledge what we haven't acknowledged, to begin to touch that place, to begin to feel what we haven't allowed ourselves to feel. So, you know, there's a sense of wisdom of dipping in and dipping out. It's a hot day, like today, you want to go swimming. You put your toes in the water. Oh, it's so cold. But you dip them in and dip them out 
pendulating back and forth. Before you know it, your toes are playing in the water. There's some acclimation that has happened. Then you go to a little bit, ooh, a little bit colder. The dipping in and dipping out. So I don't want to suggest or insinuate in any way to invite to go a place that is too difficult, too painful. But can we begin to touch these places in and out? Again, we talk about now for the 31st time, <coughs> training with kindness. And it will not be the last time. What comes up for many of us is, you know, this longing. It's the longing to be loved, to be liked, to feel at ease, to push away what's not at ease. I mean, there's a sense for so many of us, this longing for connection and for interconnection. And so sometimes the things that come up are, are revealing to us places where we're stuck. And perhaps with wisdom we understand that this is the place to bring more attention to. That perhaps within this pain my heart is waiting to greet me. Sometimes we say that the pain is, is, is just a, like a drag. It's a, like underneath this outer layer is our heart. But there's this moment that I think for many of us we want to experience a sense of belonging, connection, interconnection. It is said that Ramana Maharshi, one of the great spiritual teachers of um, India, when he was dying of cancer, his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And evidently Ramana Maharshi said, well, where am I going? <laughs> um, I don't know if we always feel like that, where am I going? Because the, the sense of separation is a chasm. But I want to also just affirm, maybe we don't have to be Ramana Maharshi, but we could be like, like out of a verse of a Paul Simon song that's called You Think Too Much, where he says, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny, everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I trust that we all have had that moment. I love his lines. Everything's just sunny. Everything is just funny. It's a moment where you feel connected. The, the idea of separation or death, it, it's, not, it's not even relevant anymore because you are the universe. And then we're not. And when we're not, there's a sense of that great longing for connection. And it's very interesting. Uh, I was doing some reading some time ago and some research was pointing that actually the very word desire its Latin root is desideri and when it's broken down the D means from and, and it comes from another root sidious which means stars from the stars belonging to the stars you know, back in the old hippie days, you know, we, we all this, you know, Joni Mitchell, we're all stardust. <laughs> but, you know, science is also recognizing, like, when you look at an atom, it's made of protons, neutrons, electrons, and a heck of a lot of space. And, you know, as we breathe in right now, we're breathing in tons of atoms, and they're turning into eventually heart, lungs, spleen, membrane, and so forth. And, you know, these atoms are the building blocks of all matter, and they're found here and everywhere. 
Perhaps that's why Einstein once mentioned that separation is an optical delusion of consciousness. That's a very powerful statement. That's Albert Einstein. That's not the Buddha. <laughs> that separation is a is an optical delusion of consciousness. And when we look at it from protons, neutrons, electrons, and space, you know, where, where's the separation here? Yet, of course, the sense of I, me, and my, and, you know, life, death, all, all begin to divide this tremendous chasm. say the teachings, again, that where MBSR, mindfulness based approaches, come from are these ancient Buddhist meditative disciplines, Buddhist psychology. And within these teachings, it speaks of deeper realizations, where perhaps the chasms of separation and disconnect, disconnection and isolation begin to dissolve. So I'd like to maybe just speak a little bit about the story of the Buddha's awakening from a psychological point of view and speak about what he discovered and how it is very pertinent to our own lives and to what informs all of uh, these mindfulness-based approaches. Now, I already shared the other day about you know him being born into a palace and being a prince and then having these encounters with the realizations of aging, illness, and death that set him on a spiritual journey. And actually, the type of consciousness that is described of what he experienced when he realized of the inescapabilities of aging, illness, and death, he experienced what's called in Pali, samvega. And samvega is just one word, but it packs a punch. It's like a paragraph. And it means when you have the realization that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. This is the only thing that matters. So you could say that Siddhartha Gautama was on fire. And what is this life? I, I so much relate to that as a personal story. Ever since I've been really young, what is this life? Has anybody else thought about that? You think you just come in and you do this and then you die and that's it. Like, what the heck's going on here? You know, you're like, what's going on here? We're sitting on this planet and we're worried about the stock market. What's going on here? Who are we? This is the perennial deep questions of the ages. Who are we that we dare to ask? You know, so it's said that... Um, Siddhartha Gautama studied with all of these different teachers and he mastered the meditation practices of the day, which were in the category of what we call concentration. that develops deep absorption in Pali jhanas, where you could become at one with the object that you're bringing attention to and experiencing profound serenity, tranquility, absorption to very subtle and powerful degrees. He mastered these meditative disciplines and eventually the, any teacher that he studied with said, well, you've learned as much as I, you come and sit next to me and, and we'll teach together. But 
it still what wasn't he could get himself one pointed and calm these deep absorptions but still what is the what's this life about suffering and so then and I think Sarki referenced it uh, the, the the practices of, of self mortification or maybe that was a, a conversation we were having alone but the after mastering these meditative absorptions he then heard that you know maybe it's by punishing the body this is the way to enlightenment and it said that he took on the practice of eating less and less food till eventually he was eating one grain of rice a day. And when he touched his belly, he could feel his tailbone. And realizing that he was on the brink of collapse and that this too, he had practiced severely self-mortification and this too did not awaken deeper wisdom within him. And realized the futility of that extreme practice and decided more of a middle path, began to take in food to nourish his body. He left these small group of five ascetics that they were practicing with. He thought he, oh gosh, he went off on the wayside. He's starting to eat again. <laughs> <laughs> and he decided, um, you know, this was, he reached the futility of self-mortification. So he got his body fed again and restored his health and then came across a tree and took his seat by this tree. And then he reflected like he had been to so many different teachers and teachings all over everywhere. And there was no other teaching to go see or to hear or to practice and that he made the determination, I'm just going to stay here. Because he had exhausted his search. I'm just going to stay here. Very strong resolve. I'm just going to stay here. Taking resources in one's own heart. And it said that um, shortly as he began to sit, he recalled a memory when he was a younger boy and it was like an incredibly he was out in nature sitting under another tree it was one of those brief moments he was kind of by himself and 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 it was this beautiful beautiful day he had totally forgotten this experience it was a beautiful day and he was just like marveling remembering this like how beautiful the day was, it was just one of those right temperature days and so there was this moments of just feeling like the sense of connectedness and open-heartedness. And then he looked over on the field and there were some farmers there and it was early, they were getting ready to do the planting uh, of seeds in the ground. They had to first churn over the soil. And there was some oxen there and plows. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened beautifulness of the day and so forth when the plow he was watching the plow blade going into the earth and almost at that moment he almost felt or like heard worms crying in deep agony of being cut open with the plow and and it swept him of oh this the pains of this world and its joys and he had suppressed that memory for so many years and recalled this again and so then he began to sit and to meditate. And this is a very important juncture right here that I want to explain that happened to him. 
and this is really the heart of Vipassana or insight, mindfulness meditation, is that he once again, of course, build up his concentration. But he realized instead of becoming absorbed with the object that he was bringing attention to, because of that impact of the worms and it brought up the pain and the suffering of, of the world, he began to focus all of his attention on the changing nature of the breath rather than becoming at one with it. This was a very distinctive shift of the meditation practice. As he focused more and more on the changing nature of things, this led to great discoveries, insights into the nature of things. So I speak about all of this because these are these teachings that you will see in MBSR and other mindfulness-based approaches that we draw from these powerful teachings of impermanence, of suffering. And so they had that, had that profound realization of suffering and that suffering does exist in the world. And if you don't want to call it suffering, you call it stress or anguish, not getting what you want. Um, you know the whole list of different types of stresses and challenges. And so there was just this recognition that this does exist. And the contemplations probed deeper and a great realization arose within him of the causes of suffering. And this to me is um, a very important moment, the causes. So actually, there's a very beautiful uh, translation by Achan Amaro. He's an English monk. And so I'll read it to you. He says, the noble truth of the cause of suffering. And again, I, I really kind of like the, the realization because it was a discovery. It was a realization. But he says that the noble truth of the cause of suffering, it is craving. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody ever experienced that? <laughs> Craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone or something, and the craving to feel nothing. This is a very powerful discovery. And I also want to just name that underneath the craving, the root is caused from Buddhist psychology, is ignorance, is unawareness, unmindfulness, not seeing clearly, heedless. One of my meditation teachers, Tampulu Sero, he used to say, midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness. Darkest of all is unawareness. And this unawareness gives rise to a whole cyclic chain. This is why today Saki was offering us the, the second foundation, these teachings of the feeling tones, Vedana, to feel and to know, 
that these gut feelings, if, if we're not aware of them, they will give rise to a whole cascade of reactivity, creating even more suffering. Actually, in Buddhist psychology, it's called dependent origination. And essentially, it's just this cycle, if unseen, leads to greater suffering. If we're unaware of that feeling tone and we begin to react upon it, it creates a whole cascade of reactivity. So this is really important. In class number three, we're offered the unpleasant event calendar. And we're recording during the week our experiences, how it affects us physically, mentally, and emotionally. In class four, we're beginning to take a closer look how this reactivity, how it affects our thoughts, our emotions, the physical sensations in our body, and these habitual patterns that fuel and drive them. It's all related to these causes. So the, if we can begin to catch these feeling tones sooner than later, we can prevent a whole cascade of reactivity. It's a good friend of mine. She's actually a meditation teacher at Spirit Rock, and she tells a story that I just love. And um, she was going to see a, a, a Shakespeare play, and she'd order tickets, and she was to pick them up at the theater, the will call, and go. And so she got to the will call to get the tickets. She was with a friend, another fellow meditator. And the person behind the counter was looking and says, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't find your tickets. And she went, whew! Yeah, she's like this unpleasant feeling tone. And then the person said, just hold on, I'm going to go over and check over here. Maybe it's over in this part. And and then you could see like the, the engines were starting to like and if they don't do this and they don't do that then her good friend who was a meditator said hey mary looks like you're having an unpleasant feeling tone <laughs> <laughs> and actually mary this was a good friend this friend wasn't making fun of her it was just kind of naming it and mary was aware enough and receptive enough like oh wait a minute you're right let me just come back to my breath let me come back to my breath. A few minutes later, the person came back. Oh, I find your ticket over there. <laughs> so if we begin to catch these tones sooner than later, it can prevent a whole reactive cycle. You know, and of course, in homework assignment in class four, we're asked to really begin to take a look at where we get stuck, what pulls us off center, the different habitual patterns that, that are happening. And what's very interesting about that homework assignment is that some of the people, not everyone, once one becomes aware that they're in a pattern, that awareness actually begins to change it. Like I became aware at this meeting, I was getting really upset, and then I became aware I was getting upset, and I paused for a moment, and I was with my breath. I came back into balance. So my teacher used to say, if you know about this cycle, it will break. If you don't know, you will go around and around and around in the wheel of suffering. If you know, you can break. And so this awareness is helping us to see where it is that we're stuck. And then, of course, class number five, being mindful, I can begin to choose a much more skillful way.
This is the third noble truth, if you will, the, the lessening of suffering through of recognizing the reactivity. And now that I see it, I can begin to respond with greater constructiveness, greater awareness, greater skill, because I'm aware. I can begin to navigate more skillfully in these rapids. So I'd like to just take apart again, um, which Anamaro says, namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone or something, the craving to feel nothing, a craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again and again. So what is a sensual delight? Sometimes we could say it's like the eros instinct or the libidinal instinct. It's to feel good, to be at home. Food, sex, shopping. How about Amazon? One click. <laughs> Boom. You bought it. It's a rush like heroin. It feels good. Sensual delight. <laughs> and the laboratory shows it right in the brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember one day, um, I was home some years ago. I was eating my favorite vegan Tofuti ice cream. <laughs> and I was in Nirvana. Everything was just wonderful. I was in the land of satiation. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I noticed I had one more bite left. <laughs> and my pleasant moment turned into an unpleasant feeling tone. And then the thoughts arose, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> well, I'll go get another bowl. But I could see through my wanting that the other bowl was not going to do it for me either. It's not going to do it for me. Yeah. And that the very longing and wanting was, was, was creating the sense of dis-ease within me. But the deeper question here is that I want to invite us all to sit with, what really am I longing for? Is it really the tofuti ice cream or the sex or the pizza? or Like, what is really being longed for? Is there some belief that I carry inside of me that somehow something outside of me is going to make me whole or make me be at home? where I can feel at ease. And that's some of the, the, the seduction of some of the wonderful sensual things because for those moments of satiation, it does feel like home, but it, it's impermanent. It doesn't last. I need to get something else. So we want to begin to investigate this. So Kabir says, friend, tell me, what can I do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning out? I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> this goes on for a long time. <laughs> So the sense of if there's a belief somehow that there's some deficiency inside and that I need something outside of me to be at home, there's a lot of pain here. So actually maybe we can typify it with uh, the Rolling Stones song, I just can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> the 
craving for sensual delight. So the craving to be someone, the superego, I, I, I. Hi, I'm Bob. I work for the Center for Mindfulness. I drive a Prius. I have a blue shirt. I, 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 I. Aren't I special? And actually, I need you actually to tell me just how special I am because I wouldn't know it any other way unless you tell me that I'm special. Yeah. This craving to be someone, to be special. And I also want to say it's very important, developmentally speaking, that we are with a family that, that helps us to know that we are special and unique. So I'm not, but it's somehow there's a deficiency or a belief that somehow I need this from you to verify how whole I am. And even if you give it to me now, it's not enough because I'm going to need it later tonight and tomorrow and the next day. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places, the country western song. Yeah. Emily Dickinson writes, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. Oh, how dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. How dreary. But not if we're looking for love outside of us. We become dependent. Our identity is based upon someone outside of me to verify my worth. This is a big one for all of us. And I look at my own life, the times that I have left myself in search for recognition, for acceptance, for, for love. And the more desperate that I tried to get it, the more separated that I felt. How can we begin to enter into the domain of our own being? As Derek Walcott will say, the time will come with elation. You'll greet yourself arriving at your own door and in your own mirror, and each will smile the other's welcome and you love again the stranger who is yourself, whom you've ignored for another. This is the work before us. And actually, maybe it's not work. Maybe it's number 32, befriending. 33, befriending again. Befriending. And so... The last craving, to feel nothing, thanatos, the death instinct, to not want to feel. And some years ago, um, there was a period of time when my son uh, was having some problems and there was a small possibility that he may have had a cancer, a lymphoma. Turned out he didn't, he had mono. And I love mono now. <laughs> Not that I wish mono on anyone, but better mono than lymphoma. And But there was this period of time when we didn't know. And I noticed during that time, you know, I didn't very much relate to this craving to feel nothing. But this showed me so deeply how much I have lived my life not wanting to feel something. Because when that was happening, all I wanted to do was sleep. I just wanted to sleep. And when I'd wake up, it'd be okay for one second, and then a second later, oh shit, what's going to happen? I 
I just didn't want to feel. It was too much. And then I began to realize this. The thousand and different things that one can do to lose themselves in sex, drugs, work, shopping. I mean, books. I mean, this is, you know, and not that, I'm not saying you, we shouldn't read and enjoy ourselves, but there's that sense of getting lost in it so I just don't have to feel anything. This is a great source of pain. So perhaps um, the song that I will entitle this craving to feel nothing comes from Simon and Garfunkel where they sing, I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. I am a rock, and a rock feels no pain. There's times we just, it's, it's just don't want to feel it. I think it's also important to say that, you know, in speaking about craving and desire, remember desire belonging to the stars, but that I also don't want to come on like a heavy moral thing, like this is wrong, this is evil, this is bad. But we also just want to understand at times that, that this is some of the precursors of why we, we can't be content with what's here, because we want something else, and that can cause agitation. And there's certain types of desires that are very wholesome. There's desires, or maybe I'd almost like to use the word wise effort. Like, why do we meditate? Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't desire to meditate because, uh, you know, I'm in desire. And, but, but, you know, like, there's, there's desires or efforts that are wise that are bringing us towards greater freedom. And there's desires that enslave us. Let us be wise with what we're going for. Are we going for more freedom or more enslavement? And so um, I want to just convey that. And, um, and, and it's not easy. This is a, a path of a, of a lifetime. But what else is there to do? Achan Shah, the Thai forest master, says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll have complete happiness. Well, that sounds good. How do we let go? And... Um, and I don't mean to make fun of Achan Shah. This is a powerful teaching. But how do we begin to first perhaps see where it is that we're caught? So we're sitting here in this incubator these days here. And we're, we're, we're seeing it big time because we don't have a lot of distractions. So that's comment about getting unhinged. We're seeing where we're hinged. And, and so easy does it. Easy does it. Easy does it. When we begin to feel the sense of easy does it, when we begin to understand that that these types of cravings outside of ourselves, because some belief that there's something outside that's going to make me happy, when we begin to break through that, we can begin to feel more content. That's actually the, really the essence of the third great realization. That there's an end to suffering through the lessening and gradual eradication of these types of cravings and, and ignorance. So Kabir would say this, he go, I went to a shop searching and the merchant there said, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. These are the poems that arise out of the richness of not wanting. 
I love that. I stayed. This is the place. It's like an oasis. The oasis is that actually I can enter into, when you think about it, the opposite of grasping and craving is ease and contentment. That doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) The opposite of hatred and aversion is open-heartedness. The opposite of ignorance is clear seeing into the nature of suffering and and abiding with greater contentment and ease. The fourth great realization is these teachings of how to live our lives in such a way to experience more freedom. These are also, you can say that the MBSR, that classes one through eight is an expression of that eightfold path, which boiled down to is living virtuously, steadying the heart and mind, and getting deeper insight. So many people, it's very interesting in our classes through the years, even though we don't necessarily start the class with, um, we offer guidelines like no confidentiality, no uh, um, you know, giving advice and so forth, but we don't necessarily talk about doing no harm and not taking that which is not given. And at the same time, as people's mindfulness grows, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, the natural virtues arise. I, like, I'll hear people say, I realized I've been living out of integrity and it's causing me a lot of suffering and pain. It's coming out of the practice. And I feel like the whole classes one through eight is just this expression of how do we live our lives in such a way to feel more freedom, to feel more connected to myself and to others and so forth. So, I think we'll do a little experiment. This is from, uh, it's a very simple, beautiful, profound meditation that uh, my teacher Tampu Lucero taught. And he said that this is a really good meditation to to die with, and it's also a very good meditation to taste some moments of freedom, because sometimes we think, oh, it's freedom, this is something that's going to happen later, not now. And we might have actually have a lot of internal narratives and dialogues, like I'm not worthy to experience this or whatever. But perhaps it is possible to have some moments of tasting what it feels like to feel a little freedom. And that we can invite that in, that we can practice with this as a practice. So I'd like to do that with you now. And I also just say that, you know, sometimes, although of course we say in mindfulness that it's best not to have like expectations and hopes, because they sometimes can lead to unexpected places. You know, what we can say is like, you know, if this practice, is it, is it, how do we know it's being beneficial? And perhaps the, the re, what's revealed is that we are feeling less stuck with where we usually get stuck. And we're seeing a little bit more clearly into where we get stuck or push away. And we're, we're feeling a little bit more sense of balance, that there's ways within the practice that reveal to us of making progress, if you will. The progress is perhaps not all the bright lights. The progress is is our willingness to see things clearly with an open heart, to be less stuck, to 
experience more balance and peace. So let's for now just breathing in and breathing out. And just for these few breaths, experience right now what it feels like. So this is going to be an invitation to to feel that in these few breaths there's not any sense of grasping or desiring for anything else, that what's here is here, and that not only, not only what is here is here, but actually in the releasing, the relinquishing of this wanting something else, in its place arises within you the sense of contentment and ease, just for these breaths. The breath in and the breath out, allowing yourself to just experience for a few breaths the sense of contentment and ease born out of this not wanting something else. Just for these few breaths. And with the next few breaths alongside these, with contentment that this is leaving of any type of aversion, the pushing away, and that in its place, there's that experience not only of contentment, but the sense of open-heartedness, sense of compassion, the heart. It's leaving as anything, that aversion, any hatred, any pushing away, that that's just not here now a sense of contentment, the sense that the heart is open, compassionate, and present. And alongside the sense of contentment and ease and open-heartedness, breathing in and breathing out, and the clarity of the mind and the heart is here. You're knowing you're breathing in as you're breathing in, knowing you're breathing out as you're breathing out. That sense of contentment that's born out of the relinquishing of wanting something, and the open-heartedness born out of the relinquishing of pushing anything away and the one that is aware and awake in here with a sense of contentment, open-heartedness, and ease. Breathing in and breathing out. possibility we can taste from time to time moments feeling settled with contentment and ease with an open heart with the clarity of mind 
this is a possibility within any one of us when we practice together, practice by ourselves. And tonight's offering has definitely some of the inner roots within Buddhist psychology and trying, of course, to share how they inform what arises in the classroom. And particularly the areas around the habitual patterns, the stress reactivity, becoming mindful, responding, that these correlate so amazingly with these great realizations. And we'll um, continue to elaborate upon this. And of course, in the classroom, I wouldn't necessarily go into the extent of these um, type of teachings, but extrapolating from these teachings. Very powerful for us to begin to look where we get caught, where we actually need to bring more attention to, to begin to get clearer seeing. So I'll end with um, one last, well, actually a little bit of both, because I'm being inspired with all the Christian things here. So this is from St. Isaac of Nineveh, who was a Christian mystic in the ninth century in Iraq. Just read part of it. He says, be at peace with your own soul and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. The ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within you, so dive into yourself and you will see the stairs by which to ascend. This is from Tsongkhapa. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your goal. Make use of every day and night. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. May all beings discover the gateways into their hearts and may they experience peace. to uh, walk for a bit and the bell will call you back for our last sit or if you're feeling that you'd like to just continue sitting you're welcome to do so and um, thank you so much thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.